Well, praise the Lord, here we are on another Lord's Day, and we are working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, my name is Rob, I'm the lead pastor here, and so if we haven't met, as Pastor Dan has also said, we would love to, to meet you and make your acquaintance, and we hope that you feel right at home here with us today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John. Alrighty, well, <clears throat> last week we concluded our study through John chapter 10, and we took that in three different sermons, and we considered Jesus the Good Shepherd. And we talked about being in the care of the loving and Good Shepherd. We talked about the motivation of the Good Shepherd, His love for the Father and His love for the Father's sheep, us. And last week, we talked about the ability of the Good Shepherd. He made many wonderful promises, but if he doesn't have the ability to follow through on those, then what, is it, what does it matter in the end? But we know that he is the Son of God, God incarnate. He is the true shepherd of God's sheep, and he is absolutely able to do all things that he has promised. Amen? He is with us. He is for us. And so this week, we begin chapter 11, and this is an epic chapter it deals with uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a very well-known story. It's unique to the Gospel of John. It's not mentioned in any of the in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so, of the seven major miracles, there are seven. I feel like maybe eight, um, depending. But generally, it's held that there are seven major miracles recorded in the Gospel of John for the purpose that we would believe. We would believe that Jesus is who He says He is, that He's the Son of God. Well, this one that we're going to be studying in the today and coming weeks stands out above the, the rest. It stands out above them all because Jesus raises a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. And when He goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, everybody says, look, He's going to be, He's already decomposing. He's, he stinks. And the New King, does anybody know what the King James Version says? He stinketh. Kids love that one, man. They really do. And so anyways, and so that, that's, uh, there's no denying it. There's no denying it whatsoever when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's amazing. This is also the fifth of the seven I am statements. Again, that's unique to the Gospel of John. Seven different times Jesus says, I am, and then he follows it with some statement like, the door, or the good shepherd, or the way, the truth, and the life. And this time, we're going to see him say, I am the resurrection and the life. It's actually against the backdrop of Lazarus being raised from the dead that Jesus will make this statement. So it's very, very profound, and Jesus would often do that. He would have some kind of a, a picture or a symbol attached to what he was teaching, just to make it very clear, to illustrate his point. And uh, such is the case here with the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. And of course, we'll get into more of that. Now, Jesus makes it clear in all of this story that the, the, central, the central point behind all of this is the glory of the Father, that he has come to glorify God. Amen? And that God was going to glorify His Son in the process of doing this most wonderful miracle. And so I've titled this, Setting the Stage for the Glory of God. Setting the Stage for the Glory of God. And as I said, it'll take us a couple weeks, two or three weeks to work through this text. But today, as we're setting the stage for the glory of God, there are four things that we're going to see that really stand out. I would say four, four factors that are at work here that are really, really um, relevant and applicable for us. Very relevant and very applicable for us. And so there's four things that we see here. And one is Jesus' love for his friends. We're going to look at that. Jesus' zeal for God's glory. Jesus' submission to the Father's timing. Oh, man, that's very practical for us. And Jesus' intention to strengthen faith. Those are really the four elements that we're going to look at in our text today. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to look at point number one. So point number one is, Jesus is a friend who loves you, so go to him as a friend. 
Jesus is a friend who loves you, so go to him as a friend, as you would a friend. Verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now it's kind of interesting. John gives us a little detail here. Now, uh, I'm sure many of us probably know who Mary and Martha are already by this point. There's that famous story about how Jesus was in their house and Martha was serving and she was very frustrated that Mary wasn't helping her. Mary was, where was Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him teach. And, and so, um, so we, we kind of already know them. Lazarus is kind of new to us at this point. And then John gives us this little detail about Mary is the one who anointed Jesus' feet. Well, what's interesting is, is that doesn't happen until chapter 12 the next chapter. So it's just commonly understood. That's a, a story that everybody would know about Mary at this point. And so G, uh, John kind of identifies them. So they're very close to Jesus. They know Jesus well. They love Jesus. Jesus is a dear friend to their family and a dear friend to Lazarus. And so when they send this message to Jesus, they refer to Lazarus as the one whom Jesus loves the one whom Jesus loves. So they're clearly appealing to Jesus' love for his friend to urge him along. And I, I love that. I so appreciate that. They were right to do that when they did that. They were right to appeal uh, to Jesus' love as a friend to urge him along. They had confidence in the fact that Jesus really loved Lazarus. You know, Jesus is a loving Savior, a brother, and a friend. And that's something I haven't talked a lot about before, Jesus as our friend. Because I think in one way, people have gone too far to the, uh, to the extreme of being overly casual with Jesus. And you'll see t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy, and you know things like that. And maybe we live in a time where there's a real irreverence toward Jesus and, the, and God and his, the holy things of the Lord. Um, and so I know that I typically really focus on Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as King, Jesus as our Master, right? And that's very fitting because He is all of those things. And we can never give Him enough honor and glory for those things. But the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is a brother, that Jesus is a friend, amen? He's a friend to sinners. And so Jesus even refers to Lazarus as His friend, in verse 11, as we will see. And so Jesus is a friend that will always answer our call. Jesus is a friend who will always answer your call. Wherever you are at, whatever you are going through, make no mistake, Jesus will answer your call. He loves you. He hears you. He's for you. If you are His, if you're in Christ, if you trusted Him, He's for you. He's with you. And Jesus even gives a little parable about this in Luke chapter 11. And it's uh, the, the parable of the, the persistent friend or the persistent neighbor. And it says this, Jesus speaking to them, he says, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now that is a bit of a crisis because hospitality, we love hospitality, we live in a hospitality, I mean, that's the industry here, so I know many of us probably, uh, many of you uh, probably do or have worked in that field, you understand that, but in that culture, they took it very seriously. I mean, you, when you opened up your home to somebody, you had to really take care of them, love on them, uh, just pour out blessing on them and be very hospitable towards them. It was an absolute insult if you did anything less, such that this person was willing to go to their neighbor's house in the middle of the night and wake them up just to get some bread, right? Who of us in here would do that, you know? And so that, that, there's the issue. Well, in the story Jesus tells, it says that the neighbor will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. 
I cannot rise and give to you. And so Jesus says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So basically the idea here is the guy didn't want to get out of bed, he didn't want to help, but the, the neighbor just kept banging on the door and shouting and hollering until he finally did get up and give him what he needed, right? Well, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying, I as a friend, how much more can you count on me to respond to you in your time of need? If this earthly, human, human, humanly speaking neighbor and friend isn't really willing to help, but will eventually help because you're very persistent, how much more am I willing to respond immediately to your call as a friend? And so we should take that to heart. Jesus is our friend. Jesus does respond. He responds in just the right way at just the right time in complete and total love towards us. And so we as friends, as followers of Jesus, we need to lean into that, folks. You know, maybe for some of us in here, we already do. Some people just seem to have this, uh, God is just dancing over them, and they are just in the love of Jesus, and it's all good, and that, that's awesome. But for most people, they just aren't really in that place. And so this is something that we all have to really press into. And it starts here, but it ends up here. It works its way from our mind into our heart. You need to know this, and you need to lean into it. God is for you. If you are in Christ, God is for you, and Jesus is a friend and a brother. Amen? Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How sweet it is. But then he goes on to say this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God was not willing to spare his own son, but gave him freely, God did not withhold that which was most precious to him. The Father did not withhold his one and only son, but gave him so that we could have life. How will he not now give us all good things? Amen? He will not withhold one good thing from those who love him that which is in accordance with his perfect will and loving will for our lives. And so we need to press into that. We need to remind ourselves of that. We need to read that and thank God for that and share that with each other because it's true. It's the true truth. You know, for many of us, perhaps we don't really make good on this. We don't go to Jesus as we ought. We don't see him as a friend because we're so keenly aware of our own failures right? Maybe we just struggle because we know that we fall short. We know that we don't measure up. And in our own weakness and our own struggles and the failures over our frustration over our own failures, maybe we kind of shrink back from going to Jesus as we ought. But you know what? I love what I notice in this text, as I've already pointed out. They did not say, Mary and Martha did not say to Jesus, Jesus, the one whom obeys you perfectly is sick. They said, the one whom you love is sick. Amen? And so it had nothing to do with Lazarus's performance as a believer or a follower of Jesus. It had everything to do with the love of Jesus. And that's, that's what it's about. It's because God is faithful. God is loving. And so, therefore, everything that he does for us and towards us is out of his nature as a loving, faithful, heavenly father. And the same is true for Jesus Christ, his son. And so it really isn't about our performance or our worth or our being deserving of any good thing. It flows absolutely out of the fact that God loves us, God loves you, and that Jesus is a brother and a friend. Amen? And so we need to go to him as a friend. You know, I had a guy tell me one time, he was talking about a friend that he was able to go to uh, whenever he was in need. And how this particular friend would never guilt him. He would not, you know, um, lecture him. The friend would, would help him out in time of need. And he so loved the fact that he could go to this particular guy 
and know that he could find help in time of need and, and not be guilted because of it for whatever reason. And I thought about that, and I thought, that is true. How many of us have friends like that where we can just go to them for whatever the need may be, and we know that they will receive us, they'll hear us, they'll help us in whatever way the need is there. We know we can go to them always. Well, how much more is Jesus that to us? Proverbs 18.24 says that a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that's Jesus, folks. Amen? Closer than a brother. Jesus himself said in John 15.13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his, what? His friends. Then to lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you, finish it, I have called you friends. Amen. Say it like you believe it. Say it like that actually is good news. Jesus doesn't call us servants. He calls us what? Friends. friends. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, I used to be an enemy of God. I used to be a transgressor against him. But such was God's love that even while I was an enemy, He gave His Son Jesus to die for me. And now what good thing will He withhold? And not only that, He calls me friend. He calls you friend. And that is glorious news. We should never get tired of hearing that, and we should approach Jesus based on that. I think it gives Him much glory. It gives Him much glory when we come to Him in the way that He encourages us to come to Him. Because it means we believe Him. We trust Him. Amen? So that brings us to the next point. So that was Jesus is a friend, so we should go to Him as such. Point number two, Jesus glorifies God, and we exist to do the same. Jesus glorifies God, and we exist to do the same. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is not saying that Lazarus is not going to die because we know that he will die. In fact, some, some people have said that Lazarus was already dead by the time Jesus got this, this message. We'll look at that next week. But rather what Jesus is saying is death will not be the final result for Lazarus. Death will not be the end result. Jesus states that the glory of the Father and the Son will be the end and ultimate result. You guys warm in here? How are you feeling? Need to turn the AC on? No? Okay. I'm all right. I'm good. Thanks for asking. All right, so this is going to be an opportunity for God's power and glory to be put on display, to be put at center stage. And Jesus himself says in uh, verse 40 of the same chapter, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God, that you would see the glory of God. Now, God's glory is a major and central theme in the Bible, so I want to break this down a little bit. God's glory should mean everything to the Christian. God's glory. And I don't know, it just seems like through much of my Christian life that hasn't been emphasized as it ought. I don't know if it's a generational thing because I think we want the glory. We live in a, in a time and an age where it's all about us and drawing attention to ourselves, social media, you know, selfies, just kind of the most polished persona or whatever we can put on, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's real. But for the Christian, God's glory is everything. And Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so we are supposed to be living for that. In fact, that's why we exist. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's a creed that has been around for hundreds of years. We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And uh, it's been modified. Uh, one pastor said, we exist to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And so we make much of the glory of God. 
we are called to glorify Him. So what does it mean? What is God's glory? What does it mean to glorify Him, and how do we do it? I want to take just a few minutes to, to talk about that, because that was what Jesus did, and that's what we were created to do. So there's really three aspects to God's glory. So just hang with me here, because this will, this will make sense. Um, there's three aspects. There is the intrinsic glory of God, there is ascribed glory, and then there's reflected glory. So let me break that down a little bit. Intrinsic is, it just is what it is. God is glorious. It's inherent in who He is. God is majestic. He's transcendent, right? He is in the, the splendor of His holiness. God is, in all of His attributes, in His nature, He is glorious. Tim Keller says, that God's glory is at least the combined magnitude of all of God's attributes and qualities put together. That's some heavy stuff, right? And so that's where it starts. God is glorious. That's why He's worthy to be glorified. God describes His own glory. In Exodus 33, Moses said, I want to see your glory. That's an interesting, that's an interesting request, don't you think? He wanted to see God. God's invisible. He's spirit. And Moses said, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to see your splendor. And so God said that he would show him his glory. And then we're told that Moses was hidden in the cleft of a rock, and God kind of put his hand over the rock, however that worked its way out, and passed by the rock. And then Moses basically saw where God was just at. And as, as God passed by the rock, this is what God said about Himself, about His own glory, about His own name. This is how He described Himself. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and goodness, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, I'm going to tell you about myself. And he described his glory as being merciful, as being gracious, as abounding in truth and steadfast love. And this interesting thing, uh, forgiving sins and transgressions, yet at the same time not pardoning guilt. And it's like, how does that even work, right? That's this interesting enigma. How, how can both of those things be true at the same time? Well, that is the glory of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ because Jesus could die in our place, take the wrath of God that was intended for us as transgressors, and give to us God's mercy and God's love through the cross if we believe in Him. And so that, that is God's glory. You know, it's all of his it's all of his his attributes. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's he's ever-present, he's unchanging. Uh, he's he's glorious in all of those ways, but he's merciful and he's loving and he's kind and he's patient. He's gracious. And so he deserves to be glorified for those things. Amen. So with that, there's what is called ascribed glory, and that's really where we come in, because ascribed glory is to attribute or to accredit, right? It's to make much of the reality. You know, as I look at my wife and I think how beautiful she is, I am ascribing beauty and worth to her, right? She is my darling, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's glorifying her as, as a husband ought to glorify his wife. And so, in the same way, in a much greater way, we speak of the splendor of God and the majesty of God, and we tell of who He is as He re has revealed Himself to us and the things that He has done. And we see Paul do this in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Paul cannot help but break out. After all of Romans 1 through 11, at the end of that, he breaks out in glorious praise 
and he magnifies the Father, giving him glory, ascribing glory to him. All right, you guys with me? And then next, reflected glory. This is to, uh, you know, to demonstrate something of God as to draw attention to it. And Jesus put it like this in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so as we live obedient lives to God, as we serve Him, as we love others, as people see something in us that is a reflection of God's goodness and mercy, God is glorified in that. As we let our light shine in this world people will see the Father in us. They will see the love of Christ in us, or at least they should. You know, there was a time where there was nothing in me that would bring any glory to God. In fact, I didn't care anything about glorifying God. I was living for altogether different things. But when I came to know the Lord, everything changed. I began to realize that I was to live a life that pleased God, that honored God, and that reflected God's goodness in my life to other people around me. You know, God uses us. He, he intends that we have an impact on the people around us. And I would say the greatest impact we can have is through our, our character, through our conduct. Not just our words, though our words are important, but also through our character and conduct. That's where it really counts. You know, when I tell um, young men that I'm mentoring and, you know, they really want to be equipped in the Word of God and they want to be Bible answer men and all of that kind of stuff. Um, there's really not a fast track to that, but what's really even more important than that is character that matches what you already know, right? Um, a little bit of Bible knowledge and a lot of character can be a really powerful thing with God. A whole lot of Bible knowledge and poor character is absolutely catastrophic, right? And so we glorify God by walking in the light, by being obedient to His truth in a very dark and lost world, sharing the love of Christ, but also living it out. And Jesus absolutely glorified God, and this is, this is how He did it. I love this. And this kind of connects back to the, the passage in Exodus. In John chapter 1, no doubt in my mind, as led along by the Holy Spirit, He is connecting the dots from Exodus 33 and 34 here with Jesus. He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy to gloss over that, grace and truth. We beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses was all about the law, but Jesus was all about grace and truth. Now, that is a very difficult combination to pull off and to pull it off perfectly like Jesus did. Because oftentimes, we are so serious about the truth that there's very little grace. Right? You ever been in that boat? You ever experienced that? Or we are so concerned with grace, it's to the exclusion of truth. And we water down the truth so that we can be gracious and kind. But to be able to do both at the same time as Jesus did, he was full of truth, but he was full of grace perfectly. And that is the glory of God. He is full of grace and truth. So that's what it is for us Christians to give God the glory, to let our light shine. We need to know the truth. We need to be about the truth. We need to share the truth. But it cannot be to the exclusion of grace. Amen? That truth has to be shrouded in God's grace, God's tenderness, God's love. And it is God's love. It is God's kindness when the truth goes forth, right? But we can't also be so concerned about kindness and gentleness and grace that we hold back because the truth can be offensive. The truth does cut, especially in an age that we live in where you can't offend anybody, you know? I was talking to someone the other day, and they were saying, you know, there was a time when it was almost like you, you could be proud of the fact that you were offended and that you just kept going anyways and you didn't make a big deal about it. Now, if you're offended, you are obligated to make sure everyone knows that you were offended. 
right? That's the honorable thing to do now. I mean, how things have switched, right? So anyways, all I'm saying is, is that to be able to do both of those, to be Christians who are full of grace and truth that glorifies God, we exist to do that, and to be a church. You know, when people come in here, that is what I want. I want people to experience the grace of God, the kindness of God, to be welcomed into the family here, and I want them to know they're going to hear the truth, the whole truth, nothing less, nothing but the truth. Amen? So Jesus glorifies God, and we exist to do the same. Number three, Jesus submits to the Father's timing, and we must learn to do the same. Jesus submits to the Father's timing, and we must learn to do the same. So really, two, two kind of sub-points under this, A and B. And so A is, God's timing is rarely, if never, our timing. Can I get an amen to that? God's timing is rarely, maybe never even, our timing, because we want it now. We want it yesterday. We live in the microwave generation, right? Right now. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now when you read that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, you don't expect what follows immediately after that. It would be reasonable to think that Jesus would drop everything in his love for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and go out immediately to Bethany, right? That's what we would pretend to think. Instead, it says that Jesus stayed two more days in the place where he was, as if he was in no hurry, as if there was no urgency whatsoever to him. In love, Jesus did the exact opposite of what we would think. This is a critical point. This is a critical point. In love, Jesus did the exact opposite of what we would think he would do in love. Yet he did it in perfect love, in fullness of wisdom and knowledge, and in perfect obedience to the Father's timing. And this is something that we face all the time, because we come to the Lord with our request, and we often wonder, why hasn't he responded? Why, why isn't he answering this prayer? And he is answering it. He's just not answering it necessarily in the way that we would like to see it answered or think that it should be answered. His timing is simply not our own. God's just not in a hurry like we are. I wish that he was, but he's not. We tend to interpret God's seeming silence or his delay as something negative. One commentary says, God's delays are not God's denials. God's delays are not God's denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he is teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that he will answer our prayers in a much more marvelous way than we ever anticipated. And that is the case for me, I can say for sure. I can testify to that uh, with my own wife. You know, when I was a single man and serving the Lord, and I deeply desired companionship, and it was hard for me, and I prayed much, and I agonized over that. And, um, but, you know, God, God had my wife all picked out. I was in Tennessee. She was here in Napa. She was nowhere even on, on the radar at that time, but God knew. Now, I could have got myself in some serious trouble if I forced my way in that matter and started trying to kick down doors and, you know, just really try to go ahead of God's timing, but I didn't. I waited on the Lord, and God brought me my wife, and the rest is history, and it's been an amazing part of our testimony, and I thank God for it, and He has done exceedingly abundantly more than I could have ever asked or thought because it was God's plan, God's will, and God's timing, and there is such safety in that. And we will never regret having waited upon the Lord. We will never regret having obeyed the Lord. Uh, we'll never say, man, I'm glad I did it my way, you know. <laughs> and so it's, it's God's way. It's God's way. Now, this may be one of the most challenging aspects of walking with the Lord, if we're honest, because this sounds great in theory, but it is so hard. We can romanticize these things, and then when we're in the middle of it, it's agonizing, really. 
And so I've learned that God really has two speeds, slowly and suddenly. That's kind of where he operates. It's slow, but man, when he moves, it is sudden. And I love those suddenly seasons. I do. I think we all do. But more time than not, it's slow. It's slow moving. And so... um, Another commentary, he says that not even Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus could force Christ to act ahead of the proper time. Couldn't do it. Everything he did was in obedience to his Father's will for him and in keeping with the divine timetable. Everything. Jesus never moved out ahead of the Father's timing and will, and there's nothing that could force him to do that. Nothing. Now, this needs to be true in our lives. We have to learn how to wait patiently upon the Lord. And really, there's two easy ways. I say easy. There's two ways, two simple ways, and it's really not even simple. But focusing on what is right in front of us and being content. You know, sure, we all have dreams. We have hopes. We have goals and ambitions. And I believe the Lord puts those in our heart. I believe that He does. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But we have to, so often we're so worried about the future and what we believe is coming that we, we don't really focus on what's right in front of us. And we can spend years doing that. And we can really miss out on what's right in front of us. We can miss the blessing that's right in front of our face. We can experience years of, uh, we will look back and think I was just chasing after the wind. As Solomon said, you can't actually get a hold of it. It's right through your fingers. And so we have to be careful not to do that. You know, do what's right in front of you. So often, guys, young men and women in the Lord, they want to know what God's will for them is. I know, and, and it's definitely afraid of missing it, as if we could, you know. But if you're just faithful to what's right in front of you day by day, in five years' time, man, you're going to be right smack in the middle of God's will, and you ain't even going to know how you got there. You were just faithful to what God put in front of you day by day. And learning to be content with what we have. Being content with what God has for you today. Try to learn to be content with what God has for you today. And glorify Him in it. That's yet another way to glorify God. Is to be thankful for what you have. And not just living for what you don't have. Amen? And so that's, that's very much a part of submitting to God's timing. Submitting to God's timing. You know... trying to think if I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll keep moving. Well, B, God's timing is safe timing. God's timing is safe timing. As I've already said, we can get ourselves in some trouble. Verse 7, Then after this, Jesus said to His disciples, Let us go to Judea, uh, Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So the the disciples are questioning the wisdom of Jesus' decision here. Jesus, we were just there. So Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, very close. They are currently in Perea, which I think is about 20 miles away. And so they had just been in at the temple, and people tried to kill Jesus. So the disciples are thinking about this. They're like, Lord, are you sure that you want to go right back where we were when they just tried to kill you? And uh, Jesus uses this illustration of daylight and work hours to speak to their concern. Now, typically there are 12 hours of daylight in which one can work safely. And, uh, you know, you got to think about this. They didn't have, you know, electricity and and lighting like we have today. And so we can work at nighttime. Uh, You know, they, they couldn't do that. And so it would be a very dangerous thing to do the kind of work that they would often do there and to do it at nighttime. And so this would make sense. So there is an allotted time, there are, there are allotted hours during the day when a person can work safely. 
as long as they work within those hours, they can see what they're doing, where they're going, and they will not stumble. Now, spiritually speaking, what Jesus is saying here is that He is working obediently and safely within the Father's uh, timing and will, within the parameters of God's set time to work. And until Jesus reaches the end, until He reaches the cross, He must continue to work. And He can do so under God's protection. Jesus can go there without worrying about being killed by those who are hostile to Him because He's on God's timing. Amen? And He knew that. Often He would say, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And so Jesus knew what He was here to do, why He came, and He knew that until that time came, He was safe. He was safe under the Father's timing. And really, we would do well to try to live in that same reality. We have to do God's work. We have to strive to be in fellowship with God, walk in the light, and serve His purposes with complete abandon. And until the Lord comes back or takes us out of here, we're on His timing, amen? Nothing can touch us unless He allows it to. And so we are to be those who lay down our lives in obedience to our Lord, who take up our cross and follow Him and serve Him sacrificially, and we're not here to try to preserve our lives. Do you all understand that? We are not here to try to preserve our lives. That's exactly what Jesus said. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake, you will truly find life. And so as followers of Jesus... We are to lay our lives down and not be paralyzed by fear and to serve Him while it is day. Because guess what, folks? Daylight is burning. Daylight is burning. Every day that passes is one day closer to standing before the Lord. And so we have work to do. And so we are on God's timetable. Now that should comfort us. We should be comforted by that. But there should also be a real sense of urgency in that. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to in fear, not go and serve God in this way. I'm not scared of these people. I'm on God's timetable. I'm on God's clock. This brings us to our last point. So that was um, Jesus submits to the Father's timing and we must learn to do the same. Finally, Jesus is committed to strengthening your faith, so let him. Jesus is committed to strengthening your faith, so let him. Verse 11, these things he said to them, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Now, it seems here that the disciples are really looking for a way to get out of going to Bethany. They already think it's a bad idea, and now Jesus says that uh, Lazarus is sleeping, and Jesus means that in a literal sense. Lazarus is dead, but they think that he means it, well, how do I say that? Jesus is using it in a figurative sense because Lazarus is actually dead, but they think that Jesus is speaking literally, and so they're like, well, look, if he's sleeping then he's going to recover, so there's no need for us to put our necks on the line. Let's just stay here. You know, and and undoubtedly, they had seen Jesus heal people from great distances anyways. So they're really like, man, this don't make any sense, Lord. We don't need to go. He's recovering on his own. He doesn't need us, but even if he did, you could do it from right here. So what is going on? You know, I'm sure that they were deeply confused by this. And they, uh, they struggled with Jesus' plan to go back. And it's just not unusual for God to call us into situations that make no sense. You ever experienced that? J.C. Ryle, I like how he puts this. He says, The servants of Christ are often placed in circumstances just as puzzling and perplexing as the disciples. They are led in ways of which they cannot see the purpose and object. They are called to fill positions from which they naturally shrink and which they would have never chosen for themselves. It just doesn't make sense. Y'all might not believe this, but I, am, I have been just terrified to stand up in front of people and, and speak. I thought, I so want to share God's Word, but I will never. I used to be just like, 
paralyzed with fear to teach children in the children's ministry. And uh, this has been an uphill battle for me for years to be able to get to where I can, you know, stand in front of people and, and do this. It did not come naturally for me. And, uh, you know, but he, the Lord called me to it. And that was one of the reasons why I was so sure that he had, because I would never choose to have to get up in front of a group of people and, and speak like that. But the Lord has helped me graciously and here I am, and so I can relate with that. God does call us into situations and places that don't make a whole lot of sense to us, but God knows. Amen? And God's trying to stretch us. That's just it. God calls us out onto the water because He intends to stretch our faith, to grow us. And it really only comes through pain, through friction, through being stretched. Unfortunately, that's just the way that it is. And so, verse 14 it says, Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us all go that we may die with him. Now that's Thomas for you. <laughs> well, undoubtedly, Jesus would have healed Lazarus had he been there. And they had seen Jesus do this countless times. And I would venture to say that it was almost like nothing for them at that point to see something like that because Jesus did it so frequently. But this time, Jesus was going to do something. It was going to be next level. Jesus was about to level up. And had they stayed back and not gone at all, man, they would have missed out on something that they couldn't have even begun to imagine. This glorious miracle, they would not have seen it. Again, J.C. Ryle says, If Christians were allowed to choose their own course through life, they would never learn hundreds of lessons about Christ and His grace, which they are now taught in God's ways. And so, we cannot be afraid to step out into uncomfortable territory. We cannot question God's ways. We have to just go for it. We have to trust Him. Jesus is committed to teaching us and growing us, and He does it in a variety of ways. He just does. You know, um, sometimes I would say His op most often uh, method of growing us, teaching us, is just shaking things up, turning up the heat, uh, tension, uh, just trials, you know, just the, the regular old rigmarole, how you like, how you like that? Regular, that's southern, regular, regular old rigmarole of day-to-day -day life. That's what he uses. But sometimes he takes us into the deepest, darkest valleys, just crushing, uh, crushing situations and trials uh, to prove to us that he's with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, to take the things that we learn here in our head and to bring it to our hearts. And, man, that's what God does. And when we're in those situations where we don't see any good in it, we don't feel like we're passing the test, we see no purpose in it whatsoever, it makes no sense to us, trust me when I tell you that Jesus is with you. He is right there with you. He's right there in that. And He's going to be with you throughout the entire thing. And He's going to be with you when it passes. And you will be stronger because of it. You will have more faith because of it. And you will give him much more glory because he was faithful in the midst of it all. Sometimes he just blows us away with extraordinary blessings. We love those seasons. Sometimes he just shows up and there is a way. He does something that was just what we needed him to do when it seemed like there was no possible way that it could actually happen. And it does more than we could have ever imagined. You know, I love those, man. I love those. But... I just feel like more times than not, he uses other methods to strengthen our faith. And in a lot of ways, that's what he was doing. But not, I see both. You know, they moved out in fear. They moved out. Maybe that was even some kind of cynical doubt on Thomas's part. We don't know. Um, but they, they went out anyways, and they saw the great blessing. They saw the extraordinary works of God through the Son. And so, let God have his perfect work in you, you know. Um, God's timing is God's timing, and God's plans are God's plans. And sometimes there are just things that we are longing for, the deepest longings of our souls, and God says, wait, 
God says, wait, sometimes we're just going through the deepest, darkest valleys, and we would love to get out of it, but God says, wait, wait, because he's doing something there that we just can't even begin to know. And so let us glorify God. Let us glorify God, trusting in his timing and trusting that he is strengthening our faith. Amen. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for all that we see in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you that he truly is our friend. Thank you that he glorifies you, Father, and calls us to do the same. Thank you that he walks in perfect submission to your obedience and is teaching us to do the same. And thank you that he is growing our faith. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us because we needed that desperately. We had broken God's holy law. We have all sinned and we all know it. We sin daily. And we know that if we had to stand before you, Father, as those who are accountable for our sins, that we would be judged rightly. But such is your grace and mercy that you made a way. You paid the price for us and you took it upon yourself. You called your, your one and only beloved son to live a life here on this earth in perfect obedience to you and then to die upon that cross, to die a sinner's death in our place so that if we would trust you, Jesus, for salvation, stop trusting ourselves, stop deceiving ourselves and thinking that somehow we're good enough to make it, but to take all of that trust off of ourselves and to put it solely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that if we would do that, call upon the name of the Lord, confess him as Lord and Savior, that you would save us, Lord, that we would be born again, that we would be called out of darkness and into your glorious and marvelous light. And every one of us in here, we need that. And I believe that most of us in here have that, but undoubtedly there are some who haven't trusted you yet, Jesus. And I know that you are calling them right now. I know that you are convicting them of their sin and their need for a Savior. And I pray that they would come to you today that they may not understand all of these things, but they know that they need you. They know in their heart of hearts that you are real and that if they call upon you, you will save them. And I just pray that anyone who needs that today would do that. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.